I'm your host, Eric Stavney, for this Nordic on Tap podcast of life stories, folk tales, and music of the Nordic countries, Iceland, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, Sápmi, and the Faroe Islands, with contributions from folks west of the Atlantic as well. If the most famous architectural icon of Norwegian culture is perhaps the graceful stave church, then surely the second most loved architectural icon is the stabur. This is the story of how I first learned about stabur's, what real ones are like, how I interviewed a couple that built their own stabur-like cabin in the United States, and how I came to spend the night in it. So let's set the historical stage. In the olden days, there was nothing more important on a Norwegian farm than the storehouse. This was the building where food was stored in summer and fall, chock full as they could make it to provide food for those long, dark winter months when the ground was covered with snow. You couldn't grow anything in the winter. You're completely dependent upon what you put in your storehouse. If the stave church represents the spiritual center of a town, then the storehouse represents the treasury of every farm. From at least as far back as 900 BCE in Norway, the storehouse was called a loft in Norwegian, spelled like the English word loft, L-O-F-T, but it has a different meaning. The loft was a, a log cabin, if you will. It was of log construction. It had logs stacked on top of each other and held in place by notches right there in the, in the corners. So two things changed in the Middle Ages with storehouses, which were usually more specifically called a bur, a loft or a bur, B-U-R, which might, we think, be a variant of the word bu, B-O, or living place, like Poles, bu which we have here in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, a town. We say Paulsbo, place where Paul lives. So the first of these innovations was raising the beams that supported the floor up on stumps or pillars, if you will, what they called stolper. And this storehouse, therefore, was called a stolpebur, or a stump house or a house on stumps or pillars. This raised floor then reduced the threat of rot in the floorboards because now it's not sitting directly on the ground uh, where water can, can seep in. And of course it reduced the spoilage of the food because now a breeze could blow under the building and carry this moisture away. The other benefit of raising the floor was that mice now found it much, much harder, if not impossible, to get into the storehouse because they couldn't get purchase on these smooth cylindrical pillars or stolper, and neither could they jump high enough to get up on the beam. Remember, some of these stolperbors were up in the air three to four feet off the ground. So you might be thinking, oh, that's great. But how the heck did people get into the door of the Stolpebur if it's three to four feet off the ground? Well, (laughs) there's stairs, of course. Big slabs of granite stacked in piles, uh, you know, progressively higher and higher and higher up to the level of the door. 
But wait, you don't want these right up to the door because that defeats the purpose of putting the board up on pillars if the mice can just jump up the stairs one by one and they're right there at the door. So the builders thought of, of that problem too. The stairs that I have seen on Stolpebur, especially in the Oslo Folk Museum, don't actually quite go up to the door. There's a gap, maybe of a foot or more, that was left to make it really difficult for mice to jump across, and yet it was something that a human could step across. The second major innovation to what we're now calling Stolpebur's was in adding a second story to it. The curious thing about this construction is now they're building a two-story log house, you know, with a second floor, and that's where this gets interesting. The second floor was surrounded by a larger framework sitting on top of extensions of the floor beams, creating a passage outside the log cabin on the second story. Passage was called a gallery. And if you look at this structure from outside, you'd see that the second story, the gallery part, is cantilevered to overhang the sides of the first floor below. And you might appreciate that this overhang protects the log walls inside on the second story and below on the first story from heavy rain and snow. The outer walls of the gallery, though, are not made of logs. They probably tried that and decided that this was too heavy a load to set out on the very edge of this cantilevered overhang. And instead, the outer walls of the gallery are made of vertical slats called staves. Now, these staves, you don't want to confuse with the staves or pillars in a stave church. The staves of the second story walls we're talking about here are long and flat pieces of wood, basically planks. These staves are part of the structure most directly exposed to the elements, which was the whole point of using them there besides the fact that they are lighter in weight. If some of them rotted, they were easily replaced over time, which you, of course, could not do it very easily with the logs, which are part of the main support structure. We'll hear more about this in a minute when we talk to this fellow who built the Stabur. Now, since this Stolpebur had outer walls of logs on the first story and the stave outer walls on the second. This Stolpebur became known as a Stavbur, stave storage house, or a Stabur, where the word Stav became Stab, S T A B. So, how were the spaces in the Stabur? used exactly. Well, grain and flour were usually stored on the ground floor in bins and barrels, which were tight enough to be rodent-proof. We already mentioned that fish and meat were cured in the gallery on the second floor. Clothing might be stored inside the room upstairs, and on some farms you saw a lot of guests arriving for some event, you know, Christmas or whatever, and you don't come for Christmas over land and, and mountain and valley to stay for a day, you come and you stay several nights, they needed some places for their guests to stay. So the second story room could be converted into or used for a sleeping room. I saw my first stabur while taking a college course in Norway. 
when I visited the Folk Museum in Oslo, that's one of those open-air museums. They, that's the biggest one in Norway, but there's also several in other places, including Trondheim. When I was at the Folk Museum, and I guess I've been there two or three times now, I have never been able to get inside a stabor. These buildings are often locked up, and maybe you can look through a window or something if there are windows. But I was impressed by the size and the sturdiness of these wooden buildings and and really astonished at how old they were. All the buildings at the Folk Museum came from locations around Norway. They were disassembled from where they were and reassembled in Oslo for everyone to see. And that includes the Gull Stave Church at the Folk Museum. Well, 40 years later, I was paging through an Asbjörnsen Mua folktale book, admiring Otto Sinding's Stabur illustration. That's the one where the boy whose flower got blown away by the north wind, he's standing right there in front of a Stabur. And at that point, 40 years later, it's about a year ago, I had become a collector of every kind of little stubble available I could find. From those little models, not quite so little, they're actually cleverly disguised matchboxes. You open the roof and take out a match. To mm, those Christmas plates with Nissa pictured next to a stubble. To even, I have a tiny silver charm that hangs from a chain. And it's a cute little tiny stubble. So I was talking to Lorianne Reinhall, the editor of the Norwegian American News, raving about stubblers and how charming they were and how they're really cool and they're in folk tales and they're in these illustrations. And then she dropped this bomb. She said, how would you like to interview someone who built his own stubbler? And I said, you mean like here in the United States? And that's how I came to meet Ron Logie and eventually his wife, Charlene, from Dillon, Montana. Well, I had a hundred questions I wanted to ask this guy, including what exactly did he build? Was it, you know, was it just like like a garden shed? I've seen some plans online you can buy to build a little garden shed that looks kind of stubborn-like. And then I I wondered, you know, now why did he do it? What was his interest in this? I I know why I think stubborns are cool, but I, I don't know what he was into. So I called up Ron Logie on Zoom, as you're about to hear. The connection was not ideal, but he asked me right away why I was interested in Stabor. And I told him about going to school in Norway and seeing some in the Folk Museum. My story is just like yours. I went to school in Norway as a Rotary scholar in uh-huh. Trondheim. There's a Folk Museum there, and they have the Stabor style from uh, Trondelag uh, there. And I remember seeing it and being really fascinated by it. But then I went to summer school in, in, uh, at the International Summer School the previous summer to learn Norwegian. And mm-hmm. we went to uh, Big Joy to the Folk Museum. And, and those things really caught my eye. And they just kind of stuck with me. And so I always had in the back of my mind to be really, if I ever had a place in the mountains, that's what I wanted to, to build, to use it as not just a storage ship, but as a getaway residence. And so I moved to Dillon in 1980, uh, and then in the early 90s, I found this piece of ground up in the mountains, and, it, and I, we cross-country skied up there a lot. And so I, I said, you know, this is as good as, this is as close to Norway as we're going to get in Montana in terms of the terrain and the, everything. So, 
said, I'm going to, I started re revisiting the idea. And so she, my wife, Charlene, gave me a book that was published in the early 90s by a woman named Terry Holman. It's called Norwegian Wood. Mm -hmm. And she did a Fulbright scholarship in Norway uh, for a year to study stave churches and stubblers specifically. Wow. The book is just those two things about the basic construction, stubbler, and, you know, the stave churches dating back to, you know, the 11th century and 12th century, particularly. And stubblers actually as far back as the 13th century, the 1200s, yeah, right. that are still standing there. Still like standing Borland. There. Yeah, right. So I just read that book cover to cover. I just ate it out. And we got around to the point where we decided, well, we're going to build something up there. And this is what it ought to be. Uh, so I went back and looked at the book and looked at the book and looked at the book. And finally settled on one that I really liked the best of all of them. It just had more appeal. Mm -hmm. It was um, from Rolog, which is a, a small community north of Kongsberg, so it's north, northwest of Oslo, a couple, a two, three hour drive. And there are, there's a state, there, there are a couple state churches in Rolog in, in, that, in that valley, hmm. um, and several stubbers of a similar style, because I mean, they, 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 were, they were built in early 1700s, and it must have had the same sort of builder that, that you know, built them and designed them. So they're all similar. So as we were putting together our ideas and thoughts, we went over and I, we drove from Oslo up there and I, I went to the farm. I don't have the book with me right now, but the, I remember the, I had the farm, the farm name. Is it is so Sternes or something like that? Sternes, yeah, Sternes. Hmm. Yeah, Sternes. So I had the farm, got the farm name, got to Rolog, and then drove south along this road, and we we're driving along through this farm country, and there it was, <laughs> sitting, sitting as a storage uh, shed next to the farmhouse. And I looked at it, my jaw dropped, because I just sort of knew everything about it already, and uh, just yeah. from that book. So I knocked on the door, and this uh, fellow must have been in his 80s, answered the door, and I asked him if, I was speaking Norwegian to him. Right. And I asked if he was Mr. Sternis, and he said yes, and I explained who I was and where I was from, and that I was interested in, in taking pictures of that building, and he says, well, go ahead. And so I went, we got a bunch of pictures, and because I want to get details of the carving, up close of the, of the carving. Carving, yeah. To get everything, to get everything right, as, as right as can be. Then took measurements, too, so I could measure, measure everything, try to get the dimensions fairly accurate. Because I'd seen lots of pictures of stubbers in Minnesota and Wisconsin, and, and my uncle built one. And basically, what they did is they just sort of fantasized what they might be like. And, and they weren't anything, they really weren't anything like the ones in Norway, the ones that, that I'd seen pictures of in this country or even seen. Um, and I wanted to be as accurate as possible. So we got all done and took some pictures, and I went back to thank him. And he asked me two questions. He says, Number one, if you're from America, what on earth are you doing speaking Norwegian? And number two, why on earth would you have any interest in this old building that's been here forever? So I, I answered both questions, explained it to him, and subsequently wrote him a nice thank you note. And then we went north. I wanted to look at a couple more. 
up at the, uh, the state church at, at Roark. And we met the pastor of that church. Hmm. And um, he showed us around at those stubbers at, on his place at the parsonage and took us through the state church that had been used continuously, you know, since it was built. This is a sidelight, but they had, I don't know if they're digging at a grave or something in recent, two things they'd found. They'd found the original cross for the original uh, altar, which was uh-huh. a stone cross. It was carved out of stone and it was a Celtic. Is a Celtic cross, um, and they had that in the front. So I, I took a picture of that because I wanted to incorporate that into some of my carving because uh, it represented that that valley and, and the religion. And the other thing they found this black granite stone cross that with very narrow cross pieces, but it's about four feet high. Hmm. And the archaeologist uh, realized it was an Irish cross. That dated to 800. So this was a religious site as early as 800 by Irish slaves that were brought back by the Vikings. And I mean, that, that's, that's just kind of a side note, but I really, really thought that history was really, archaeology was really fascinating. So anyway, we got, came back home, and I kind of drew out the plans, and I called a friend of mine who is an architect over in Pullman, Washington. I said, you know, do you have any idea of anybody that might be able to do this? Because it's a log construction and the logs go straight up two stories. But what we wanted to do is have a living quarter up there. And by having logs going through the vertical walls right. upstairs, um, it would, we would lose all that space. Because in a, in a stubber, the overhang, the cantilever, is called a gallery. Mm. And the gallery is just for insulation. There's a breeze that blows through. There are no windows, um, and it's it's for uh, storing different different things, and it's just protection. And it that outer layer has just uh, wood planks as walls, which can be replaced over time. And the overhang and the cantilever protects the logs from rain and snow and moisture. And so it really that's why these things last forever, uh-huh. because just that construction alone has prevented weathering, uh, whereas most buildings were just straight sides um, weather. And then it's up on it's up on pedestals, each corner is on pedestals that can be replaced over time as well if necessary. So anyway, back to Pullman, he says, yeah, I've got a good friend who who's an architect and he's on the faculty at Washington State University. His name is Nils Peterson. Uh, my son-in-law is Nils Peterson. Uh, but Nils' uh, uh, specialty is European arch- old European architecture, and he built a three-story barn without any nails. So I said, I think this guy might be up to the challenge. So he came over, we gave him the book to study, and I told him what the general design was and what my expectations were for you know, accuracy of, of design and, and appearance. And I wanted ovoid logs because in early 1700s, they made them ovoid rather than they just had straight round ones. And ovoid actually repelled the, the water better, dripped off, and there's less of a flat, flatter surface to collect it. Right. And that's what I use it then. Hmm. So I, I had all these specifications on what I wanted in terms of accuracy, but we had to adapt it to our building site and the hillside and all a bit. And we were going to build a, put it on a, on a, 
on a foundation because we're going to have a crawl space down below for you know heating and, 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 and water and stuff like that. Anyway, he came back with a, a, a model uh, for it uh, that he made a stick model for it and and the designs and we modified some of them and it looked like this would be a good thing. He had an engineer look at it to make sure that the, the actual construction of the log on the bottom and then the adapted log timber frame on top would handle the wind and snow load and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's a deal for where you live, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't get a ton of snow. It's not like the Cascades, but sometimes it can, it can snow a lot. And then, then the, other, the other difference is that, that we put windows in it, whereas towers don't have windows because this is going to be a living space. So then I had to find somebody who could, the two other things that need to be done at that point, I had somebody who was a good enough builder to take an architectural project that he'd never, or he or she had never seen before and imagine what it is and could problem solve well enough to do a good job. And a, and a fellow I knew got his start in log house building and built hundreds of log houses over the year, all sorts of types. And I showed him this and he just lit up. He got this big smile on his face. He said, this is going to be a fun project. <laughs> so th then the next step was getting materials. So the architect had all these specs for the materials. And I went over to the Bitterroot Valley, which is south of Missoula, where there were a whole, at that time, there were a whole lot of log house companies. Right. And I brought them these designs and these, what I needed for logs. And almost every one of them said, well, uh, this is what we can do, but why don't you just do with round logs? Uh, it'll be a lot quicker and easier. And I said, you don't get it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> until, I, until I found somebody who sort of appreciated it, said, yeah, we can do this. This is how we'll do it. You know, it's going to be more expensive around logs. I says, well, I, I realize that. I've already factored that in. So we got the ovoid uh, logs uh, on order. Um, but then the big unknown was the carving because there's lots and lots of carving on there the, are the yeah surfaces of these of these buildings um and and so there's there are major staves and my minor staves uh on the supports right um the big corner round corner posts mm -hmm. that are it can be on the first level but classically are on the corners of the second level right usually always carved and very they're fluted they're very ornate and and all, you know, same thing. I, I found a, a wood carving club up in Butte and one in Bozeman, went and talked to them and the same sort of thing. Well, those are interesting, but you know, you gotta do this because it'd be a lot easier if you just do, do a Welsh design. It'll, it'll, it'll sort of give you the same feeling. Yeah, you don't get it either, do you? So, so then I said, well, I'm gonna to have to figure out how to do this. And so I started searching the internet and I found a couple in Wisconsin that uh, do week-long workshops on, on Norwegian wood carving. Fantastic. And uh, it's Phil Odin, he is a third generation Norwegian American and his wife Elsa Bigton, who is a Norwegian. Phil had gone to a three-year carving school in Norway 
he met Elsa there. So Elsa got into furniture making uh, with with wood carving, and, and Phil, and they, and they both they both taught and they sold. They made their living doing wood carving as well as Norwegian fjord horses. And they had a farm, and they had converted their barn into a workshop. So I went out. I think it was 2002 uh, to a first uh, workshop. It was a fall workshop for a week. Never had a carving tool in my hand. And uh, so the first task is to uh, start carving something. You have to have a project. And so I had a project of, of the exterior door uh, portal uh, on each side of the, of the door and the entrance. Uh, and these portals, the, the concept of portals goes way back to the state churches because they would carve the portals with dragons and goblins and all sorts of things to prevent you know, evil spirits from coming in. So that was my first task was to carve a portal. I just remember having this piece of one inch thick, 12 inch wide, you know, eight foot long piece of white, beautiful white pine, drawing the pattern on with pencil, tracing it on. And Phil had already done this once before, uh, so he knew this pattern already. And so he was able to get me going pretty easily. But first time I put a knife into that and started cutting the wood, I said, man, what am I getting myself into? And at the end of the week, I got about half of one of them done. And that article may have a picture of me holding Yeah, it. I'm, I'm looking. Are they like the doorposts where, and excuse me for not wrecking it, it looks like almost like a a fan blade motif on the bottom and then yeah, and exactly it looks like you're holding holding them yeah. so that's while that's while we're in the midst of construction because i had to get these things done as he was building them so that those first oh. couple of years i spent a lot of time both winter and summer carving learned a ton the next year i went back and did another week-long workshop in the spring to learn more ornate carving acanthus carving because I was going to have interior stuff with that uh, on it, which uh, was a lot more complex. And so if you look on the picture of the, of the second story, the big stolper, the corner posts, when I went back to that first workshop, I basically, we didn't have good white pine here in Montana. Um, and they have lots of it in Wisconsin. <laughs> I got Phil to uh, secure enough to make four of those, and then I hired him to make those four. Otherwise, I did the rest of the carving myself, because I didn't, I didn't know how to do it when I needed them for the construction right away. All of these other things could be added as we went along. And the first other patterns I did were fairly simple to do. So that carving was really a key thing to make this even happen. And I'm, I'm really happy that I couldn't find anybody to do it because it's been a great hobby over the years. <laughs> so I carved, I carved ale hens and, and um, kuba stools. You know what a kuba stool is? That's the, that's the chair that's with, made out of a hollowed out tree trunk. Oh, yes. Kuba. Yes, I do. Yeah. Those are yeah. amazing. So you carved one or more of those? Yeah. I've carved nine of those. Um, those and are amazing. I've got, one for each of my grandkids, and, and I've got a bunch of blanks in our, our shed. It's, it, it took from 2002 to 2005 to complete it. Um, and uh, the builder in the wintertime would take his cross-country skis and ski in. 
take the toboggan and pack any stuff in that he needed and worked, you know, year round on it. Really neat. And it sounds like you have a serious hobby. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it looks like you have something uh, rising out of the apex of the roof. Yeah, that's called a spissa, which means a point. Point, right. And, that, and it's traditional to have those on there. And then they, you put a wheat sheath, sheath of wheat on top of that in wintertime as a tradition at Christmas to uh, feed the birds. And oh, we, we that's where you put it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've actually done that too. So Ron went on to describe how he and Charlene, his wife, used the Stabur for family get-togethers, especially at midsummer and around Christmas time. In the winter, they have an Ebleskiver or Abelskiver party, uh, a big cross-country ski party event. Great skiing up there, by the way, in the winter near Big Hole Pass in the mountains above Dillon. I must have sounded very appreciative of his efforts in building this Stabur cabin because he invited me to come and see it. So in September 2020, my wife and I drove to Montana and were able to see the Stabur in person. The carving detail that Ron put into the cabin is stunning. His craftsmanship and art reflect this determination he had from the beginning for this project to make something authentic and pushing it till he was able to realize his dream. Then we finally got a chance to go inside a Stabur. And sure, it, this one was different. It was set up as a residence. Didn't have a, a gallery passage in the overhang. It does have an overhang. But the ovoid logs, the carving, the, the, the reverence of something built to last, all of those things were there. The inside of this cabin stabur has an internal stairway with sleeping quarters, a kitchen, living room. And when you look out the window, it's like looking out on the mountain landscape from a setter farm. Well, we got to spend the night in it. And before we left, I had my wife take a picture of me standing in front of the stabur, holding an empty bowl and looking like the north wind had just blown my flower away. Thanks to Ron and Charlene Logie and Otto Sinding's illustration, I was able to bask in a little bit of folklore. And now a cut from the Norwegian folk dance album. We've been talking about Norway after all, so we've got to have a Norwegian folk song. This is from the Nordag Grieg Spelmanslag in San Jose, California. Uh, I played with this wonderful group for a short time, about a year or two, and I want to give a big shout-out to them.
Thank you to the Nordog Grieg Spelmans Log for their music, and thanks, as always, to Daryl Jackson, who wrote our theme song. More of Daryl can be heard at Daryl Jackson Music, all one word, dot com. Do you have some Nordic music we could play on Nordic on Tap? Music you can make yourself? Friends, don't let musicians pick up their instruments before dropping us a line. We'd love to interview them and showcase their music. Do you have an interesting story to tell yourself? I'd love to hear from you. Maybe get you on the show. Write us at NordicOnTap, all one word, at gmail.com. Be sure to visit us at NordicOnTap.podbean.com to hear the future shows and past shows or listen to our podcasts from your favorite podcast provider. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, and Amazon. Please do follow us at Podbean, like us on our Nordic on Tap Facebook site, so we know you visited and what you'd like to hear more of. Also till next gang, till next time, we see us for Nordic on Tap. This is Eric Stavney. Hadi bra imellem tiden. He lives in Dillon, and, and he grew up in uh, Bellevue, and he and his mother are really into opera. And she was visiting one day, and I was back in her garage. That's where my carving workshop is. And it was a Saturday morning, and the Met Opera was on, and they were doing the last of the ring cycle. And so here's Wagner's Götter Dämmerung with <laughs> Brunhilde singing her 30-minute emolition scene, you know, where she's burning on this funeral pyre that she's lit herself, mourning the loss of Siegfried, and she's singing her guts out. And I had the volume turned up really loud. And I was carving, and dragons were coming out of the wood, you know, as I was carving, and I was getting their teeth to show and their tails to flare and twist. And and Alan and, and his mother came around the corner, and Alan said, my God, Ron, what are you doing? I'm just getting in touch with my Norwegian roots. It all it all ties together.